Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. My name is Jeremy McCandless and welcome as together we again today explore the timeless wisdom of the scriptures. I'm your host and I'm thrilled that again today we embark and continue on our journey of discovery. In today's episode, we're going to be looking into this intriguing passage from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 11, covering verses 14 to 28 today. And today, we're going to try and unravel an incident from the first century that still holds great relevance for us today in the 21st century context. So stay tuned as we explore the accusations made against Jesus, one might say the ultimate accusation, and the wisdom that he was able to impart through it, and even dealing with the unexpected interruptions, the things that came along, the attacks made on him and his responses to them that make this passage today truly fascinating. I suppose the most extreme perspective I come across pretty regularly now when I encounter people or I meet with people and I talk about the Lord is the fact that today some, some people claim that people never live. The philosophical society that I meet with and the group of people there, most of whom are paid up atheists, some of them would actually hold that position. Now. A significant number of people seem to feel that way today, but I think really, in all honesty, that's a truly outlandish viewpoint. It's not based in any way that you can test from history, even from secular history of the early church. But even beyond that, I'd like to take it up a notch and say that there are people out there who would go so far as to say, not only did Jesus not live, but if he did live, then he was actually a liar, a deceiver. In fact, he was, in a sense, doing the work of the devil. Now, to me, that seems an illogical and an irrational claim, but it's something that you will probably come up against, certainly if you have a life outside the church and you live in the world. You see, it's interesting for me because it's contradictory because at one and the same time, it denies belief in God, but it accepts a belief in the devil, or at least a belief in evil. But friends, like all things, there's nothing new under the sun. So the question arises, first of all, who would express such a thing? And if he did it in Jesus' day, how did he deal with it? And how might it help us deal with such things? The surprising answer is that the people who did it in Jesus' day were not the ordinary man on the street, but they were the great religious leaders of his day, the people who lived during the time of Jesus. It was them who made these remarkable, I would say ridiculous statements. They said that what Jesus was doing, they watched what he was doing, they heard about what he was doing, they witnessed the amazing things he was doing, how he was transforming people's lives for the better, and they somehow concluded that that meant he was, uh, well, doing the work of the devil. Now, I could understand if you come to this passage and you read it and you think, well, it's fascinating in the sense of when it takes place in the first century, but how do we extrapolate out of it a 21st century context? Who thinks like that today? 
Well, you might be surprised that a great many people, although they don't express it by nature of what they believe, actually are saying the same thing. So what we'll do is let's drop into the text, examine the events themselves. I'll read to you the whole passage that we're covering today, and then we'll work through it verse by verse, as is our pattern here on these podcasts. And then I'll hopefully try and draw some meaning and application out of it at the end. So let's begin with Luke 11, verse 14, which in my Bible is titled, A House Divided Cannot Stand. And it tells us this. Jesus was driving out a demon. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd were amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this, because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub, now I drive out demons by Beelzebub, but who do you followers then drive them out by? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man had trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes, and he takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter the house, and they dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. As it happens, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised a voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and blessed are the breasts that nursed you. But he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Okay, friends, now the majority of this passage is addressing the serious accusations that are made against Jesus, and then at the end there's this sort of notable interruption by a woman. Now, all of it deserves our attention and unpacking. So let's begin to walk through the passage, beginning with verse 14. Now, Jesus here is was casting out a demon from a man. We're told that he was mute, but also in Matthew's account it adds the extra detail that he's blind. Now, Jesus is seen to successfully expel the demon, and that is is testified by the fact that this previously mute man begins to speak. But the crowd's reaction, well, that's described as being amazed, awestruck, if you like, emphasizing the profound impact of this healing on the ordinary people, the ordinary man and woman in the street. But the Pharisees, however, the religious leaders, see this differently, friends. Verses 15 and 16 tells us, But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. So this accusation that they make against Jesus is really significant because 
Despite, on the one hand, denying Jesus' deity, they acknowledge the existence of the devils and the demons. And I think you might reasonably say that surely is a contradiction in itself. It reflects, I think, the Pharisees' tendency to even resort to illogical actions, lies, slander, rather than just simply doing an honest, coherent analysis of what they've seen before them. But they recognize that probably doing that, an honest appraisal of what's happening, is probably useless to bringing about their ends, which is, of course, the destruction of Jesus. I think we need to acknowledge that this represents the very natural human condi the condition of the human heart. In ourselves, if we're truthful, we are often inclined to think the worst of people. We prefer to hear derogatory information about other people, which backs up our negative view of them or the world, rather than just factually analyze what's going on, particularly if they're complementary things about someone who, or something that we've already been set against. But the question still remains, why would the Pharisees make such an extreme claim against Jesus? Well, the answer lies in the fact that by his life and ministry, they were faced with a tremendous dilemma, a dilemma that we'll see unfold in the rest of this passage. The rest of this passage actually looks at the reactions of these various groups of people to Jesus's miraculous actions, the miraculous things he's done up to this point. And the Pharisees and the scribes, no doubt because they're feeling threatened by all of this, they accuse Jesus, they recognize that what they've seen is miraculous, but they accuse him of performing these miracles through the power of the devil of all things, Beelzebub, as he's named, the ruler of the demons. Now this action is absolutely a strategic move to avoid to enable them to avoid acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah. It actually means there's another subsect within that group of religious people as saying that they actually sought another sign from heaven, indicating a lack of conviction. They'd already been shown miraculous things and they're asking for more as if that would have made any difference to their interpretation. Now, it's crucial to note that Jesus addresses both accusations. He answers, he provides answers for both of those perspectives in the verses that follow. Let me just read for you again verses 17 to 20. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out by demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive demons out by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God must have come upon you. So Jesus begins his response by highlighting the irrationality of their position, the irrationality of this first accusation of this first group. And he uses the analogy of a house or a kingdom divided against itself, emphasizing that such a division, if it were true, in the kingdom even of Beelzebub and the devil, it would lead to its own downfall, destruction and desolation. This is not mere division, he's saying. This would be a self-destructive conflict if this were true 
Uh, and Jesus then extends the logic to Satan himself, suggesting that, of course, this means if Satan is divided against himself and was casting out his own demons in the world, then that means Satan would be bringing about the downfall of his own kingdom. So he's really highlighting the illogical nature of the accusation, both from a, a view of the satanic world and for a view of the religious theological perspective that they were approaching this with. The point is clear. The accusation that Jesus casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub is inherently illogical in all aspects, both human and theological. Verse 19 adds another layer to Jesus' response. He brings up the notion of your sons. So he's likely referring to those people within that religious perspective, within the religious establishment, those followers of those group, reminding them that they themselves, they and their followers, all claim to cast out demons themselves. And Jesus challenges them by saying, well, if I'm... If the, if the power to cast out demons comes from the devil, by whose power then are you casting them out? So again, he's emphasizing the inconsistency of their position and their reasoning in their response to this. In essence, Jesus argues that attributing his miraculous good deeds to the devil is not only illogical, it's self-defeating, both from, this, from Satan's perspective and an understanding of the demonic realm, but from the viewpoint of those who are making the accusation because they practice a version of exorcism themselves. It's a very comprehensive response, isn't it? And it sets the stage for Jesus to address the second accusation found in these verses uh, in the next passage. As the passage unfolds, we see Jesus introducing, well, very, how shall I say, intriguing perspectives, suggesting that even those who accuse him of such acts, because they believe in demonic exorcism, are actually undermining their whole principle of the religious system that they believe in. And this clever turn puts the, the accusers in the position where they have to either reach a decision forcing them to make a decision to affirm or deny the possibility of a casting out demons is it possible and if it is true and they're demonic and they're being cast out then by what power is that happening so moving from this perspective jesus then presents his own viewpoint in verse 20 and he talks about him doing it and how he does it and he uses the metaphor of casting out demons with the finger of God. Now the choice of the term finger is deliberate. It would have been more normal to say by the hand of God, but the sort of the allegory here of saying the finger symbolizes the fact that the ease and the simplicity, the not needing to use any dramatic force to do it, in other words, conveying the supernatural nature of the power of God to deal with these issues, well actually fairly straightforwardly. He then gives this added level of metaphor to what he's saying when he says in verse 21 when a strong man fully armed guards his own house his possessions are safe but when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters 
The underlying message here is that Jesus is stronger than any force of evil we'll find in the world, demonstrating without question his power and authority over evil powers and principalities in any form all over the world. Now, summing up the argument against the accusation, Jesus asserts that, of course, it was illogical to say that it was just the power of Beelzebub himself that's casting out demon, because that by nature would contradict Satan's interests. Instead, he says, you need to focus on the God's strength over the power of darkness when you've seen it in front of your eyes when someone's life has been transformed from darkness to light. Now, as the passage continues, we will see Jesus shift his focus towards the response of those when he declares, if you're not with me, you're against me. So he's indicating that an opposition to this position, to, to not accepting who he is as Messiah, implies taking a contrary position to that of God and his work in the world. The imagery of dividing plunder resonates the idea that the actions of doing that work against the unity and the purpose that Jesus intended, that the will of God intended for us as human beings. Now, the passage coming is rich in metaphor and argumentation. It challenges the accusers to either accept or reject that Jesus does in fact have authority over the demonic realm. And it sets the stage for further teachings and interactions as Jesus confronts the challenges posed by these religious leaders. And it is the religious leaders, friends. And then we have this profound truth where he says, look, you've got to make a decision about this. There's no middle ground. It's a stark choice between being for me or against me. There's no room for neutrality in this battle. You're either on one side or the other. Let's see how he unpacks it further. There's a real now level of depth being added to this teaching here. He says this, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the state of that man is worse than the first. Wow. Jesus here, friends, is employing a powerful illustration using the idea of casting out this unclean spirit as an illustration and the dangers that we all face in life. The expelled demon, he talks about seeking rest, not finding it, finding then returning to the house, which of course represents the individual who had previously been demon possessed or demon repressed and he finds it swept and in good order the implication is of course that there's been a change has occurred in this person's life that there's been an improvement in their spiritual state since this event took place however it says the unclean spirit will return with seven more wicked spirits and then if they're in the command's condition worsens now this leads some people to interpret that this is simply an illustration of someone who didn't experience true transformation. But I think it's much more nuanced than that. Some say that the use of the term the house being empty and swept is an indication that the fact that the demons came back in that he wasn't truly saved. I have to say, in all humility, I challenge that interpretation. The cleanliness and the orderliness suggest 
a positive change has taken place. So then what does this person's worsening condition upon the demon's return imply with these other things? It implies, of course, spiritual regression. And that's simply a different understanding to suggesting that it means that the person was never saved or a genuine transformation didn't happen in the first place. In my view, the notion that the house being swept and in order indicates that the positive transformation under the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, did take place. And it acknowledges the idea that, that an individual can experience a significant change in their life when they come to know the Lord and the demonic is cast out of their life. But you see, I, in essence, believe this passage is ultimately an allegory. It's meant to be a vivid metaphor what introduces this extra level of complexity, of deeper understanding, by using this as a thought-provoking illustration that's meant to enrich and add depth to our understanding of the spiritual concept of spiritual transformation post-conversion. And it ultimately stands as a warning against the potential dangers of going back to our old ways. And boy, can that be a problem for some people, particularly when those old ways are particularly destructive. Real life examples of individuals, people struggling with alcoholism or drug addiction, post-conversion adds depth to our understanding of what can happen post-regeneration. But it isn't always about those dramatic things. We are all of us tempted to go back into our own ways. Maybe not in ways that stand out as obviously as the others, but it's a battle we all face. Therefore, I believe by understanding the nuances of what is being taught here, we are better able to encourage ourselves, but more importantly, encourage other individuals who fall back into old destructive behaviours, whatever they may be post-conversion. The idea that Christians, even genuinely saved individuals, can experience moral regression or serious sin, I know that's not comfortable for a section of believers out there and they don't like to accept it. But I think you have to accept the reality of many people's life journey, many people's lived experience, of many people who come to Christ and still acknowledge the fact that they can fall they can backslide, they can fall back into serious sin. And that, I believe, aligns with my understanding of the text and an honest interpretation of the scripture is there to encourage us that when that happens, that we are not lost, that we should battle on. Now, I accept that this is a difficult text and other Christians might say, smarter guys than me, smarter women than me, have a different interpretation of this. But my understanding that this newly swept house represents something good, for me it resonates with the biblical calls for believers. When they reach that point where they've stepped under the grace of God, outside the power and the control of the world in their lives, it is a call for believers thereafter that point to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now this understanding of this difficult text I think really encourages us all as believers not only post-conversion to avoid sin but also to actively choose 
to pursue and develop a deeper relationship with Christ and achieve, diligently pursue spiritual maturity post-conversion. And I believe this interpretation of taken adds layers of honesty and truth to this passage, emphasizing for all of us our need to grow and fill our lives with positive, godly pursuits after we experience any conversion or spiritual transformation. I think actually it challenges a simplistic view of salvation and sanctification, encouraging a more honest understanding of the Christian journey, the reality, in fact, of what most of us experience today, particularly today when many people who are coming to Christ have lived a life wholly in the world and not under the influence of Christ and his teaching and the teaching of the church. Okay, there's one more implication in this passage and it's in verse, sorry, there's one more application of the passage and we find it in this final section, verse 27 and 28. And it says, as it happens, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nurse you. But he said, more blessed than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's interesting, isn't it? What's this saying here? Well, you can be more blessed than even Mary. How would you like to be more blessed than Mary? Would you consider Mary blessed? I mean, she was special, wasn't she? Acknowledging that, how would you like to be more blessed than even she was? There are many people out there who, who say that Mary was the most blessed person that ever lived. But Jesus says, no, we can even be more blessed than that. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying to you and I and the people listening on that day and today that we can be more blessed than Mary herself. And we do that by, here is what he says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So very simply, if you obey the word of God, in other words, if you hear it and keep it, then he's telling us that you and I can be more blessed than Mary. That's what he said. I'm not saying it. He says it here by his own words in the text. And I also think that that phrase pretty much sums up this whole passage. In other words, you need to hear that's interesting to know. That's the very thing that the people who are accusing him of being doing the work of the devil, that's the very thing they don't do. They didn't hear. We simply need to hear. In order, by hearing, we, he'll be able to clean us up, set our house in order. But then, after that, we need to obey. We need to obey so those influences of the world don't come back in. Faith comes by hearing. That's a common phrase. But obedience comes by doing. So to be saved, obviously you need to believe, but to be blessed, you then need to do. And I think that kind of sums up the passage. But also the caveat, the warning is there, as I said, if you don't do that, the potential is you could end up worse than when you started in terms of your worldly physical state. So the point is, you better hear, but what you hear, you better pay attention to and be obedient to. Okay, let me try and sum up this whole passage in a phrase, which is, when accused of casting out a demon by the power of Satan, Jesus, first of all, logically refutes the accusation and asserts that there is no neutrality in the position. The truly blessed people are those that accept who he is, 
who hear what he says and then heed what he says. Heed the word of God also. That's a sort of summary statement of this whole passage. And let me close by trying drawing a couple of very simple applications out of it. What it means for us today in the 21st century. I think we have to consider and hold intention that Christ said in all of this, we cannot have a neutral position. You're either a believer or an unbeliever. There's no middle ground here. And if you're a believer, you need to actively make the choice to change to the other side of the street, so to speak, and to trust and to walk with Christ. And the danger is if you receive Christ and you don't do that, then the spiritual state you can end up is that you can end up being in a morally worse state than before you were saved. In other words, to put it another way, if you want to be saved, you must hear the word of God. If you want to be blessed, you must hear and heed the word of God. And that is what will save you from the attack of the enemy in the world and falling back in to your old ways. The way to prevent up ending up worse than when you started is by simply hearing and heeding the word of God. And I believe, friends, that that is the overall flow of the complete passage. That is what Jesus is trying to get across to these people then and to us today. He wants you to hear who he is. He wants you to recognize that he's not just a man who claimed or used magic powers to do the miraculous, but he is in fact the Son of God. Ultimately, Jesus wants you to acknowledge that and then he wants you to hear what he says, and then he wants you to do what he says. And by doing that, you will be blessed. So, as we conclude this episode today, the thing I want you to remember is that hearing and heeding the word of God is the key to preventing spiritual regression. It's the thing that will stop you falling back into your old ways and it is also the thing that will enable you to enjoy the blessings of God. So that's it for today. Join us in our next episode, friends, when we'll continue to unravel the rich, the deep teaching found in Luke's account of the life of Christ. If you're here for the first time, don't forget to subscribe and that way you need never miss another single episode. Why not leave a review if you're finding this helpful or share it with others, so other peoples. So a next time, keep seeking with the wisdom of God in the pages of this great good book. And maybe the way you'll consider doing that, committing to it daily, is doing it with me here today. Bye-bye for now. Okay, that's it friends. Thank you very much for joining with me. I couldn't do this without you. The knowledge and the evidence that I see that so many people are listening to that is that which enables me to know and be encouraged to keep on with this, uh, with this project. The plan is to work together through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're two and a half years into what I estimate will be a 10 year journey, Lord willing. And I trust that you can too make the decision to make the study, the in-depth study of the Word of God part of the rhythm of your daily life. I'm being so blessed in the doing of it 
I hope you're being blessed in joining me on this journey. We're doing it together. We're learning together. We're growing together. And by doing that, we're staying safe in the world. We're protecting ourselves from the wiles and the attacks of the enemy. And we're growing in our spiritual maturity. I really firmly do believe that. So thank you for being with me. I would remind you that I provide a full episode notes page and in fact indeed a transcript of everything I say. They're free, freely available, copyright free. The place you'll find them, if you're not seeing them, where you get your podcasts from is uh, on the Bible Project at buzzsprite.com. That's the host page and there you'll find links to other places where you can connect to and even support this ministry if you wish. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Subscribing means it won't cost you a penny. It'll just ensure that you need not miss another single episode. So with that said, I'll say bye-bye for now. I don't know if you can hear my dog barking in the background, but she says bye-bye as well. And I do trust I'll see you back here again tomorrow or whatever day works for you on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.